hope that as we look at God's word today, that you see clearly who Jesus is and how big a claim he makes, but how amazing it is if this really is true. I'm going to pray for our time, then we're going to get stuck into this passage that Gav just read out to us from John 10. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are good, that you sent Jesus, the good shepherd, into this world to show us how it is that we might find life and life to the full, that he really is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, and that as we understand this and know this, we find the life that you give. And Father, we pray that you would do this tonight, that you might be glorified. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's reasonably easy to make kids happy. It's similarly easy to make them sad, but it's it's reasonably easy to make kids happy. I was struck by this recently when our four-year-old came home from preschool absolutely buzzing. And he was, just, he was bouncing off the walls, and so I was intrigued to find out what it is that was actually making him so excited. And it came about that he'd been told that uh, one of the teachers from his preschool was going to bring a, a magic hat to preschool the next day. But more than the, I think the best bit about it was, so, like, it was good just to see him sort of bouncing off the walls about this magic hat. But the best bit about it was that he started to get kind of caught up in the, he was so convinced that it was going to happen that he was caught up in the practical details of it. So he started offering to his other siblings, like, um, hey, look, I'm thinking of picking up a dragon. Like, would you guys like one too? And they're kind of discussing this. But even more than that, he started to get mine into the sort of the really practical details of what it would look like to actually have to bring a dragon home. And he started saying things like, I'll probably just get a small dragon because um, otherwise he might eat sooty our rabbit. So we'll probably have to keep him inside as well and all this kind of stuff. Can you bring a dragon inside? And you see, like, he was just blowing his mind. But unfortunately, it kept them up to about 10 p.m. on their bunks, just talking about the details of what it was that he was going to bring home the next day. So I must, I must you know, remember to email Miss Annette and thank her for that. That was very helpful. But it is amazing just how easy it is for kids to get caught up in the excitement and wonder of life. And as we look at that, it's almost hard not to feel a little bit jealous, isn't it? Because as we kind of grow up, we get a little bit more dark and cynical about life. We're not so easily won over. In some ways, that's good because you don't want to be caught up in any old scheme. But at the same time, we miss that, that kind of childlike joy, don't we? Because even though we grow up, the desire to live life to the full, the desire to be happy never goes away. In fact, you really cannot get away from the, from the fact that you, with every decision of your life, are choosing what will make you happiest. Even when you got up this morning, when the alarm went off, and you woke up, you made a decision about happiness as to whether or not you'd be happier if you just got out of bed or if you pressed snooze nine times over the next 40 minutes and had the worst sleep of your life and got up after that. You made a choice after that to go to work or to uni or whatever it was to do the day and you decided, would I be happy if I did that or if I just called in sick? You chose what you were going to wear, what you were going to eat and all of these were decisions, minor calculations throughout the day about what will make me most happy. We cannot escape it. Every decision we make is based on that. We are looking for life and life to the full. But the problem is as we get older, it seems harder and harder to really find it. And so the passage that we're looking at tonight is a passage where Jesus claims the authority to be able to offer exactly that. That he says he can give life and life to the full. And it starts here in John 10 where he's talking to a group of Pharisees. As a church, we've been moving through this book called the Gospel of John. 
which is a story about Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, which we'll get to on Sunday. Please come back for that. It'd be great to get stuck into as Gav speaks on that. Um, but we've been sort of following through this book, and at this point, he's had a few run-ins with, with religious authorities. And in the chapter just before, he's had a massive clash with a group called the Pharisees. There are a bunch of religious leaders in Jesus' day who believed that the way to find full life was to obey a set of rules about God and then some more that they had added in. And they thought, if you obey these rules, if you keep these rules, if you keep these laws, God will approve of you and you will have life and life to the full. And Jesus is about to bring their world down. Look at what he says in John 10, 7 to 14. Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Well, what is all this talk of sheep and whatnot? Well, obviously Jesus lived in a, in a society that was mostly agricultural. So the, the audience that he's speaking to, when he talks about sheep and shepherds, they get what's going on. They see it day in and day out. And he tells them a basic sort of story. He says, look, uh, thieves... Don't enter by the gate where the gatekeeper is. If he's trying to steal someone's flock, they kind of sneak around the back and they steal sheep that way. Then he makes another point. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep. Hired hands don't look after sheep because they're not their own sheep and they don't care about them. Now, if that's all that Jesus has to say, that's not particularly controversial. Anyone who knows anything about agriculture will be fine. That's a, that's a great story, Jesus. Is that it? But the audience that he's speaking to get what's going on, and they know that the point that, he make, that he's making is controversial. See, the, the, in the Old Testament in the Bible that they would have been very familiar with, God talks about his people like a flock. And he talks about himself as a shepherd, but he also talks about the leaders, the priests in their community and others, as shepherds. And so when Jesus says that I am the good shepherd and all who've come before me are thieves who only come to kill and destroy... He's saying, these Pharisees here among you, they're like thieves. They don't come to bring life. They come only to kill and destroy. And this was the truth. See, they were in a very religious culture. And people wanted life to the full, and they believed that the way that that was probably going to happen was by some kind of religious solution. And these leaders, these Pharisees, knew that. And so they were telling people, yeah, you can be right with God. You can have life to the full. Just keep all these rules perfectly and you'll be able to do it. And Jesus calls them out again and again and again. In the Gospel of Matthew in 23, it's probably the most savage attack that he, that he lays on them verbally. And he says this in, in Matthew 23, 23, talking to these religious teachers. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He says you teach people that they can be right with God by keeping all of the law, and yet you don't even do it yourselves. You hypocrites. 
You're peddling a message that you don't even practice. You preach it, but you don't practice it. And he goes on. In 23.16, he says, Woe to you, teachers, uh, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, a proselyte. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much the child of hell as you are. Jesus says, look, you've you got to win these people over to this version of religion that you've created where you say that if you keep the law perfectly, which you don't do anyway, that you'll be saved and you'll have life and God will approve of you. And he says, you know what? You're not even saved yourselves. You don't even know God yourselves. And you're, you're dragging other people down with you. He says, these guys are thieves. Later on in Matthew 23, 2 to 7, he says again, teachers, and Pharisees, uh, teachers of the law and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus says again and again to these Pharisees that they're, they're thieves. They, they tie up heavy burdens for people. They don't even care about them. He says they're like hired hands. They care nothing about these sheep. They are deceivers and they come only to kill and destroy. But what does that have to do with us today? So we don't live in a particularly religious society, do we? If you're paying attention to the latest census, you would know that Australia is actually becoming less religious rather than more. The group, the kind of religious group that was growing the fastest is a group with, that they call the nuns with no religious affiliation. We wouldn't consider ourselves a very religious society. And so Jesus' warning about these thieves and things, you're like, well, that's, that's great for his time, but that's not really for us now, is it? But here's the issue. Even though much about our culture has changed, the desire to find life to the full hasn't. And even though we don't, have, we don't settle for kind of traditional religions, we do have our own. One author, Dr. Paul Witz, wrote a book called the religion of psychology, the cult of self. And his, his kind of thesis is that the, the biggest religion in Western countries is the religion of self. The idea that I will find life and life to the full as I find my true self. As I self-actualize, as I understand myself better, I will find myself. And he calls it the biggest religion in the West. And because of this, as you would expect, you start to find these kind of thieves or false teachers creeping into this as well. People who are just like the Pharisees, who tie up heavy burdens and don't lift a finger to help the people with them. I remember talking to a guy a couple of years ago who was mentoring a man whose career was in motivational speaking. And, uh, and so his job was kind of week in and week out to kind of give motivational talks in various sort of contexts. And so he decided to go along and listen to one of the talks by his mentee or I, I don't know what you actually call it but he went along and he was shocked by what he heard and afterwards he went and spoke to him and he said you need to stop doing what you're doing he says you got up in front of these people and you told all of them that if you believe in yourself you can achieve your goals you can do anything you want you can be amazing all this kind of stuff he says you know that's not true you know that it's not the case that everyone there is going to be able to become an astronaut this is not going to by the numbers that's not going to happen but more than that, he was saying, look, you know that it depends on people's giftings, on how hard they work on all these things. And yet, in order to gain an audience and a, and a wider thing, he almost had to overpromise and underdeliver. And we see this again and again. 
that the religion of self is producing kind of Instagram experts, that it's almost not a week that goes by where one of these Instagram experts isn't debunked as a, as a false teacher, that their credentials were false. Even last year, Belle Gibson in Australia claimed that her holistic lifestyle that would kind of um, lead to a sort of a, a wellness kind of uh, well-formed self could actually cure cancer. She claimed that she'd had brain cancer and that her method had gotten rid of it. And it turned out that her claims were false. She was teaching people things that completely didn't work, that not only didn't bring life, but actually might lead to death. And yet did it that she might have a platform and prominence. These teachers, these thieves, still exist. And see, it is the case that... that the religion of self is the biggest religion of our day and yet it is not leading to fullness of life. It's not dealing with our deepest need and our deepest issue. I read a book recently by a guy called Simon Sinek and it's called Leaders Eat Last. And this is what he commented uh, on, on self-help culture. And it will come up on the screen for you. But he said this, Self-help books, courses, and any number of pharmaceuticals make up a multi-billion dollar industry designed to help us find that elusive happiness. In only a few decades, the self-help business has grown to $11 billion. The biggest thing the self-help industry seems to have helped is itself. Our search for happiness and connection has also led us to seek professional advice. In the 1950s, few of us went to, weekly, to a weekly session with a therapist. Today in the US, according to the Hoover Institute, there are 77,000 clinical psychologists, 192,000 clinical uh, social family therapists, have I read that right? No, social workers, 105,000 mental health counselors, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, and 30,000 life coaches. The only reason the field continues to grow is increasing demand. The more we try to make ourselves feel better, the worse we seem to feel. The religion of self-help has identified a need that people want to find life to and life to the full. And then we also know that we're deeply flawed. There's something wrong with me that needs to be addressed. And the promise is that you're also the answer. That if you just believe in yourself, if you work hard enough, you'll be able to work through it. And yet, it's not working for us. And so what Jesus says is something different. Jesus offers something completely different. He says to these people, he says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now what does that mean? Why is it that Jesus would need to die for his sheep? Probably one of the things that I think gives Jesus so much credibility is that his message is more honest than it is pleasant. Jesus tells us first and foremost that our biggest issue is not that we haven't self-actualized, but that we're sinners, that we've rejected God, that we've chosen not to follow God, and that has led to all kinds of destruction in our life. That that, first and foremost, is our biggest issue. Just two chapters before this story, Jesus says to the crowd in front of him, whoever sins is a slave to sin. See, often we are tempted to think of sin as just our behavior that needs addressing. But Jesus says it goes much deeper than that. Sin is not just a kind of a behavior issue that we need to kind of clean up so we can get right before God. It goes way deeper than that. Now I'm going to try and illustrate this, and I ran it by someone this week, and they said it didn't really make sense, but I'm backing myself. So we'll see, we'll see how this goes. 
But let me just to give you an, an illustration of, to get some sense of what the Bible's talking about when it talks about this idea of sin. If, if you've seen the movie Inception, uh, I'll try and, without getting too stuck down in the details, because no one really understands that movie anyway, right? It's like a, it's like a harder to understand matrix. But anyway, uh, the, the, the premise of the film is this. There's a bunch of people who can get into, can kind of plant an idea in other people's minds by kind of accessing their dreams by basically plugging into their head. Look, it's not important how they do it. It's just they can do it, right? But, uh, but in the movie, there's kind of a running thing. And this isn't a total spoiler. It's just one little part of the movie, okay? But um, there's, there's kind of a running story in the movie that the reason he found out that this could happen was because he trialed it on his wife. And he planted in her mind the idea that maybe she wasn't living in the real world, that, that the things around her were not actually real. But once he did it, he realized he couldn't take it back. And once he had planted that thought in her mind, it ruined her life completely. The way she related to the outside world and to other people was changed forever and irreversibly, and he couldn't stop, and it, and it led to tragedy and eventually to her death. That that single thought that maybe my surroundings are not real completely undid her world. Sin is not just behavior. It's the single thought that God is not my good shepherd. He is not the one who is to have authority over my life. If anyone is to rule over my life, it's me. And yet that single thought changes everything about our lives. It changes the way we think about ourselves, about our relationships, about the world around us, and about life in general. It is not a minor thing. And it is too deep for us to deal with. And so Jesus says that he is the true gate, the one through whom we'll be saved. We need to be saved. That sin was something that we messed with and it was way too powerful for us and now we need help. And he is the good shepherd who steps in to help. See, the biggest issue is that sin cuts us off from God and it means that we are facing death and judgment forever without him. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who steps in and lays down his life for the sheep. That when we had a problem that was too deep for us to deal with, he came and dealt with it by laying down his life. He says, these false teachers and these thieves, they're willing to let their followers die for them so that they can get a name and a platform. But the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He goes after them and he saves them. This is the message that he brings. But the question with this might be, what, how is it that this leads to life and life to the full? Well, Jesus' death on our behalf means that the penalty for our sin is completely dealt with. He lays down his life so that our life might be spared. And what that means is when you trust in Jesus and believe that he is the good shepherd, that he becomes your shepherd and your protector. And to kind of explain a little bit of, of what this would be like, there's a, a section of the Bible that I want to run you through. And uh, when um, I was speaking to an army chaplain... And he knew my, my grandmother and said that um, towards the end of her life, so she became a Christian very late in her life, and he said um, towards the end of her life, she really loved the soldier's psalm. I thought, like I wasn't aware that there was a soldier's psalm, and so I was interested. I was like, look, anyone who's kind of facing life and death situations, they, if they have a psalm, I'd like to know what that is. And it's, does anyone actually know what it is? No, it's, psalm 23 apparently is the soldier's psalm. But as we read it together, I think it will stand out as to why. Look at what it says in Psalm 23. This is written by King David, who was a soldier himself and a king. And he writes this psalm. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It says, this is what it's like to know the good shepherd. To say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If he's taking care of my deepest need of sin and death and life forever, then there is nothing more I need in this life. He says, he lays me down in green pastures. He gives peace and contentment. He says, goodness and mercy will follow me all of my days. That means I look forward to the future because I know my best days are ahead of me rather than behind me. It's to know that God, the almighty creator, is my protector and shepherd. And that changes life completely. If I could explain in maybe the, the simplest way, think about it like this. Have you, have you ever seen what effect a jumping castle has on children? Or adults, for that matter. It's even funnier. But you'll notice, if they, when, they, when they get onto a jumping castle, everyone starts out the same. They're just kind of doing small test jumps to see kind of what's up. But then they start to discover that they are virtually invulnerable on this thing. And so they start to become quite brazen. And then by three minutes in, they're doing front flips and bouncing off the walls and all of that. And yet, of course, eventually it leads to a head clash because they realize that actually, you know, other kids aren't soft like the rest of the jumping castle, but whatever, right? But they, they have such a good time because they love just, just bouncing around in an area where they absolutely cannot get hurt, right? To know Jesus as your good shepherd is like that. To know that even if I walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. I'm invulnerable. He's taking care of my deepest need. And that leads to a kind of joy in life that we cannot get without that. That once your deepest need of sin and death has been dealt with, you think, well, what else is there? There's a freedom and an invulnerability that comes with it. And so what does this mean? If you're a Christian, it means that you know the Good Shepherd and you have life and life to the full. Is it the case, as you reflect on this Easter long weekend, that those around you, your friends and family, would be able to look at your life and say, that person has life and life to the full? Martin Lloyd-Jones said that unhappy Christians are a poor commendation to the world at best. That's a strong statement, isn't it? But he was an old guy and he was too old to care, so he liked shooting from the hip. But I... I get it. The first objection that would come from that is like, well, what about significant trauma or things like that? Look, of, of course. Like when serious events come, it doesn't mean that Christians are completely chipper throughout it as though they were, you know, that nothing could happen to them at all. But to know that sin and death have been dealt with, to know that Jesus, your good shepherd, who laid down his life for you and who walks with you and knows you by name, it should transform our lives. If only it were the case that it were just major traumas that kind of would have kind of rattled our shell. It's not though, is it? We are often rocked by anything. Last week, uh, my wife, so she's very good with her phone ordinarily, but had dropped, had dropped her phone and smashed the screen last week, got it repaired, and then as always happens, right, 
it got dropped again like three days later. And she said to me, she's like, I've got to tell you, I dropped my phone again. You're not angry, are you? Or upset about it? I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. It's great. It's good. <laughs> and then on, that, on the weekend, I went away on a thing called Spartan, which is like an obstacle course thing. Didn't realize that I had my wedding ring on. Ended up losing that. And so it was my turn to say, you're not upset with me. And she was like, no, no, of course not. I'm fine, right? <laughs> but both times, they were reasonably small incidents, but it put such a cloud over my day. I just, it darkened my mood completely. I was like, I'm so easily rocked by insignificant events. It's almost as though I don't know that the Good Shepherd has laid down his life. But even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of smashed screens and lost phones, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, I would feel no evil. To know Jesus the Good Shepherd means I have life to the full. I have reason to rejoice, to not be bitter or jealous of other people. And to be thankful, knowing that Jesus laid down his life for me. So if you are convinced, on this Easter long weekend, remember that Jesus died for you. When we take communion later, remember Jesus died for you. He laid down his life for you. He's taken care of your biggest need. He has brought you life and life to the full. So celebrate. When we sing, sing with all your heart, knowing that you have been saved by the Good Shepherd. And if you are unconvinced, could I, could I ask you this question? On a scale of 1 to 10, if 1 was completely convinced, uh, sorry, if 10 was completely convinced and 1 was kind of full of doubt, how sure are you that right now you have life and life to the full? And let me ask you if it's not too much, a second question. How sure are you that Jesus is not the answer? With 10 being, I'm absolutely sure that Jesus is not the answer. And one being, yeah, he probably could be. On a scale of 1 to 10, how sure are you that Jesus is not the answer? Could I put this to you? If you are 10 and you're totally sure that he's not the answer, could I just ask one small thing? On Sunday, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus and whether or not there is any reason to believe that that actually happened where there's any evidence that a, a scientific, reasonable-minded person could believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And Gab's going to be speaking on that. And that will cost you just an hour and 15 of your life. And I know your life might be busy. But I think it would surprise you to hear about the evidence for the resurrection. And so if you are totally sure, just be sure that you are sure. We'd love to have you along to hear about that and hear about who Jesus is. If you're sort of somewhere between like a, you know, a, a three to a seven on that, we're on something called Christianity Explored. And I'd love for you tonight to, to let us know if you'd like to come along to that. If you have some doubts about whether or not you have found life to the full and whether or not Jesus might be the answer to that, Christianity Explored is a, is a chance to go through one of the Gospels, a story about Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, and to see whether or not the claims that he makes stack up and it could be the thing that changes your life completely. And so if that's you, the easiest way to do that is just to let us know on those Connect cards later that you'd like to know about who Jesus is. But if you're at the point where you're starting to wonder, or maybe even for the first time, are reasonably sure that Jesus really is the Good Shepherd, why don't you commit your life to Him tonight? If you are really sure about that, we would love to speak to you 
Gav, who's been emceeing, and I will be up the back, and we would love to talk to you and pray with you if that's a decision that you would want to make. Because there is no more important decision that you could make in life. Jesus' claims are outrageous, but if they are true, they're completely life-changing. He's not mucking around when he says that he's the good shepherd who laid down his life. He died an agonizing death on the cross to die for your sin that he might win you life to the full and bring you back to the flock. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to hear the testimony of someone who has come to know life to the full. And during that time, it'd be great if everyone could grab out those connect cards and be ready to fill those in as Gav comes up. I'm going to pray and then we'll kick over to the video. Let's pray. God, we praise you. You didn't leave us alone in this world, but sent Christ to die for our sin on our behalf, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Father, we thank you that this news is true and good and free for all. And we pray that as we understand this truth, that we would live it out completely and that we would know the depths of what it means to have a good shepherd watching over us. And Father, we pray that we would do this not just on this weekend or at this time of year, but throughout the years until the day that you call us home, that you might be glorified in our lives. Amen. We're going to hear from Rob. I think you will have to pour out your